Welcome to the next episode of Podcast Payoffs. We're so glad you're with us. My name is Gord Vickman, here as always with my podcast partner, Dan Sullivan. We have a very special show today. We're joined by a good friend of the show, great friend of Strategic Coach, and Dan, one of your podcast partners for the show Capability Amplifier, Mr. Mike Koenigs. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here with us. It's my pleasure. Always fun to play with you guys. Mike, you're a best-selling author, and you're someone that has the solutions, and people have been going to you for many, many decades to help solve problems in the business realm, the entrepreneurial realm, and the marketing realm. I don't really know how to compartmentalize all that and summarize you in a few sentences because you've done so much and you're doing so much right now. Is there anything I'm missing right now that you could help fill in for those who may not be all that familiar with the work that you're doing? There's a couple things worth noting. One of them is I'm a small town nerd from a farming community that figured out how to get out of that little town. And I became a developer, a programmer first, and then a marketer second. The story I usually say is my first business cost me my first marriage. My second and third businesses nearly cost me my second marriage, my relationship with my only son, and my life. So along the way, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, we experience dark nights of the soul. And what I've learned are two big things. One of them is I want to be trained and taught by people who've been through everything I have or worse because what we're looking for as business owners are shortcuts and guides of trust. And something that I really admire about Dan is he has a operating system that revolves around a positive moving future and a positive focus moving future. And that's my goal is to live a life of simplicity, elegance with the least amount of aggravation all the time. Mm-hmm. Mike, one thing that, from my experience, is sort of unique about your background, not that you started very early, you started in your teens, but you did a double dip because usually entrepreneurs start off selling something and it can be anything because they're looking for independent cash flow at a very young age. They're looking for financial independence at a very young age. And the other thing is they'll start off with technology. They'll get interested in some sort of technology, especially in the last, you know, 30 years. So it's either selling something or technology, but actually you started both exactly at the same time, the selling and the technology. So that puts you into a very pioneering, I think, very pioneering role right from the beginning. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about audience building. You kind of sense something right off the bat that the selling activity has to be facilitated by the technological solutions, especially as they get more powerful. Yeah. So from a background perspective, my first company was called Digital Cafe, and we were one of the first digital marketing agencies in the world. And at that point, that was pre-web. So one of the ways I got some of my big high-profile clients was from Prodigy, Lycos, which a lot of people have never heard of that, Apple Link, CompuServe, and then AOL a little bit later on. We're talking which, 80s. Yeah, 80s and 90s. Yeah, even mid-90s. I started posting messages and showing examples of our work, which we were effectively creating. We called it branded entertainment at the time. So like we created screensavers and floppy disk based. We'd put like a whole animation, a story on a floppy disk. Now this is 
one megabyte is what you have. So it was a black and white animation with voice and sound. It was almost impossible. So we had to really figure out how to be super efficient. And this is before there were CD-ROMs. And when CD-ROMs came along, it cost like $15,000 to have a CD-ROM burner, $10,000 to create a glass master. And then the next stage was online, but you know, you had to design something for a 14K modem or a 28K modem, which was painfully slow. Our videos we could put on a website were the size of a postage stamp. And we're doing movie promotions for 20th Century Fox and Sony. Mm. So I think one of the tie-ins here is, you know, finding effective ways to use technology to promote market, create a movement, and create buying behaviors is always a moving target. And you know, you got to avoid boring at all costs. Yep. So that forces you to take on whatever the cutting edge is without completely alienating the masses. So there is a very delicate balance there. And there isn't much of a delicate balance anymore. You know, you can brute force a lot of stuff, but the biggest challenge anyone has now is everyone's online. It costs nothing to broadcast. It costs nothing to like make a podcast or broadcast video on social media. That was impossible not long ago in 2006, 2007, when we were starting to broadcast. It would cost me 15 to 25 grand to do a multi-hour broadcast show because there was no YouTube Live or Facebook Live or whatever. Our Zoom here, we can create really yeah. terrific <laughs> videos with Zoom now. Totally. Pretty well for free, you know, really free, actually. Exactly. And so now, more than ever, you've got to be strategic about audience building because you can't do something. We used to call it spray and pray. And so you just <laughs> all over the place, send out whatever and pray that someone's going to see it because it was unique and different. It happened. And being cutting edge then was different than now. It was hard. It was risky. It was expensive then. Now, I don't think it's hard, risky or expensive, but what you've really got to do is figure out how to go deep and narrow and have a meaningful conversation that's authentic because the world smells inauthenticity really quickly. We're just so used to like today, I got a text message that said it was from American Express that a certain thing was approved. And I had to send the message to my bookkeeper saying, is this real? You know, you don't know what is real and what isn't real now. And it's going to get harder as deep fake technology gets better and better. Like that, I think, is our next big thing is it's like, who do I trust? What do I trust? And how can I tell if something's actually virtual or real now? Well, I think uh, the other aspect about this, and Gord has quite a background in this. I was a copywriter for BBDO in the early 70s. So my trip to Canada 50 years ago was really to be a copywriter with the Canadian affiliate, you know, that had BBDO. But BBDO, you know, even today is probably in the top 10 of global advertising agencies. But we were dealing with very, very expensive radio space, very, very expensive TV space back then. Oh, yeah. And you were used to the fact that there was only so much frequency and it was a monopoly and it was essentially controlled by the government in some way. And I think that a lot of people, even though the internet is virtually unlimited, as far as I know, it is unlimited. But the thing about that, I think that the mind that there's only so much 
space to go along. You only have so much access. You don't. You got unlimited access. But the rules that work for the scarce mediums don't work for the totally abundant medium. It's a totally different approach. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right on. When you think about it. Mm-hmm. There's only so many FM frequencies, there's only so many channels, and there were gatekeepers. Now, there's a good part to that and a bad part to that. And I mean, one of the things that's interesting is there are no gatekeepers, there's no limitations to anyone who can broadcast anything. Well, individuals are the gatekeepers. Yeah, and the listeners are the gatekeepers, because yeah. if you put out a show that sucks, or you're doing something online that really sucks, no one's going to watch it. But that's one of the, the great things and one of the bad things about podcasting or YouTube broadcasting yourself is there are no gatekeepers. So wading through the trash heap to find something that's of quality is the new form of the gatekeeper. Yeah. But Dan, when I was thinking about the way that you built Strategic Coach, I'll call it, you know, the strategy you had because we didn't have the ability to do what we're doing right now. It was sort of boots on the ground. You were the one setting things up. You were the one traveling by yourself to various cities. Did it ever feel like a bit of a slog to you or did you No, no, because what were you comparing it to? True. I mean, there wasn't something easier that you had come from. I mean, this was great. You know, I mean, this was great. No, I never felt it. But when you begin to see that there's alternatives to what you're doing, you know, which I saw with Zoom five years ago before we were more or less forced to go to it, I said, gee, I wish there was somebody at the other end. You know, I've kind of mastered it from my end, but there's nobody at the other end. And within three months after, you know, COVID became the rule and there was shutdown, all of a sudden, the whole world was at the other end, and I was totally prepared to flip in 24 hours to the new thing. I've been waiting for it for five years, but I mean, one telephone isn't very valuable unless somebody else has a set too. You know, I mean, you got to have listeners on the other side, you know, and that's been remarkable. But, you know, I mean, you talk about trash and everything like that. You know, I think nature kind of works on the principle. There's only two things. There's seeds and there's manure, <laughs> you know, and you just got to know which is which. <laughs> True. My background is terrestrial radio. That's where I came from. Oh, yeah. Ten years doing a morning show and I got out because I looked over the horizon. I didn't like what I saw. And also waking up at 2.30 in the morning drives you a little bit bonkers walking around in a state of catatonic exhaustion at all times. I'm like, yeah, 10 years of this, it's time yeah. to move on. But we had like yeah. we had a boots on the ground strategy as well. And one of the ways you build a traditional radio show is if somebody wants you to go do something, to put your face out there in front of a crowd, you do it. We emceed every bake sale, every church bazaar, every community this. There's a hockey tournament like we were up on stage hundreds of times like every single weekend every single night anytime they wanted an MC because that's what you do because people are much more likely to listen to someone that they've actually met and seen in real life so we must have hosted over the 10 years got to be 500 different community events it was just boots on the ground the station had been number six for 19 years and within three years it was number one and it, all it was was just we worked harder than everybody else I thought we were a better show too. We were more yeah. entertaining, but we just went out and did it. And it's different now because of course, this is like early 2000s. We didn't have the ability to do podcasts. I remember getting audio on our website it was just such a pain in the rear end. It was difficult. We had developers there trying to figure out how do I put an MP3 on a website and no one could figure it out. And then now look where we are. 
Here we go. Yeah, and just to put things in perspective, Gord, you could be mining in Sudbury. So, yeah, right. And all that time mining in Sudbury, Mike could have been picking crops. I could have been picking crops, milking cows, and we're not, you know. So, I think life's pretty good. <laughs> Mike, you said the word authenticity, mm-hmm. and I came across this really neat article. I cannot pronounce this gentleman's name. I'll attempt though. Renivas Rao, he has a podcast and he's a longtime podcaster. He writes online as well. And he was talking about how to build an audience. And this comes up all the time. And that's why both of you, I'm gifted with two of the best audience builders probably on earth. And that's why I wanted to ask you, because I'm sure others would be interested. He's talking about how audience building has much to do with your personality as it does the work that you're putting in. So he said, you need four things. You need social intelligence, compassion, authenticity, as you mentioned, Mike, and generosity. And if you don't feature those, and if those don't ooze out of your pores, you're basically sunk because people are going to recognize right away and they're not going to be interested. So social intelligence, compassion, authenticity, and generosity. Let's start with you, Mike. Do you agree with those or does anything kind of stick out as like, no, don't need that? What do you think of those? I think they're all important. And this is a really important thing that I've realized in people I work with is You know, when you meet someone and you're blown away with their it factor in Hollywood, they say that person walks in and sucks the energy out of the room or you feel them when they walk in to meet a true charismatic. You know, that's what we look for is someone who's got that raw talent and know that you can do something with it. And that's so attractive. It's sort of like, you know, the way people described a lot of the young rockers who all died at age 27, right? Whether it's Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin or Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison. Yeah. Amy Winehouse. Totally. Yeah. There's that interesting cycle. There's two other things that show up for me. One of them is just that raw, they just know how to manifest and manage energy in a magical way. It's an energetic presence slash they're like a sun, right? All the moths are attracted to the bright light, but if you get too close, you get fried. And that's oftentimes what happens when you work around these personalities. Another side of it, and maybe this falls under the category of social intelligence, but they understand the universal nature of momentum. And by that, I mean, they have this ability to get stuff rolling. And I've watched it before. So a fake way of doing this, for example, is for someone to hire a bunch of camera people and video people and follow them around. And it creates the sense of who is that? Who is that? And there's pictures taken, you know, like politicians do it. A lot of folks will do it, but they'll create this fake momentum and eventually enough people believe it. Is that an LA thing? Because Mike, you're in San Diego right now. Is that an LA thing? I've read about that service where you can actually hire people to follow you around and then people will assume that there's five photographers following you around. So you must be important. Yeah, Yeah. it is. But it's not just in LA. I've seen it and you see it in airports, you know, and it's like, who is that person? Who's that? It's sort of like, am I missing out? Am I supposed to know this person? Right. Ty Lopez did a really good job of that initially to build his platform. And pretty soon he was showing up at basketball games and people were clapping for him at the same level of intensity as Colby Bryant Mm -hmm. because he bought seats right next to the players. And suddenly when you show up everywhere and you're driving the fancy cars, even if everything's leased, enough momentum gets created. So, you know, and there's 
ways to fake it and there's ways for it to be real, but that is definitely an element. But I'm curious what Dan's read is. Yeah, I'll tell you a little story. And when I was 18 years old, I wanted to be an actor. Okay, so similar story to Mike, farm boy from Northern Ohio. And the truth is I have good acting skills. Any play I've been in, I've been good. I've been good in any play. I've probably been in, you know, 15, 20 theatrical productions. When I was just leaving high school, I moved to Washington, D.C., and I, you know, I worked and I went to university. But the real star in both the movie world and also the theater world at that time was Richard Burton. Part of the reason is he was a tremendous actor. He had a phenomenal voice, probably one of the greatest speaking voices in theater or movie history, and had a tremendous amount of focused energy. He had just signed the largest live theater contract in the history of theater, and it was for Hamlet on Broadway for $1 million. I mean, this was unprecedented. I mean, actors in England were lucky you know, in the UK where he came from, we're getting 50,000 and they were happy for it. You know, we're talking 1962 here. So dollars were different back then. I wrote him a letter and about three weeks later, I get a three page handwritten letter back. And I think it was real. And apparently he had a reputation for answering his own fan mail. But I had asked him several questions and I don't remember everything I asked him, but Every question I asked was answered in the letter. And then he got to the last page. He said, but here's the deal. You got to decide something. He says, do you want to be an actor or do you want to be a star? And he said, if you want to be an actor, there's really great acting schools where you'll go and it's like a craft. You learn the basics of acting, you know, and you'll go through various stages and get more and more noticed and involved. And then you can go through regional theaters and then you'll gradually get to bigger theaters. And he says, that's acting. He says, star, what you do is you skip the schools altogether and you go to the smallest, most insignificant community theater and you're the star. And then when you outgrow that, you find another one and you go and you're the star. But you're always the star. You're never a supporting actor. You're always the star. And then in the last paragraph, and this sort of told me that it was real, he said, by the way, I never wanted to be an actor. <laughs> he was a star. Yeah. He was a star. And my sense is that before you decide who the audience is, you have to decide what you are. Are you a craftsman or are you a star? And I think it makes a real big difference what it is. I think I'm more inclined to the star than the acting way of doing it. But a star in my own world, not a star in somebody else's world, you know. In order to be a star, it took me 30 or 40 years to actually create the setting and create the structure and the support system. But I've always been inclined to be a star in the sense I didn't want other people telling me how to do what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. That is such a great distinction. So I have three things. I'll try to make them as fast as I can that correlate with that. The first one is what you've done, Dan, is you created your own platform. You've created your own theater. And Tony Robbins said something to me years ago that at the time I was pissed at him. I was like, what a jerk. And then I thought about it. And I realized how genius it was when he said, 
Mike, I'm in the entertainment business. So we were talking about transformation and stuff like that. And he goes, no, no, no. 80% is entertainment. 20% of it is content. And I was like, I just curdled. My hackles went up and I didn't realize how important it is because you can go to a place that's all content and it's boring as hell and there's no following. He knows the value of being an entertainer. And I would just flat out say, Dan, you're a great entertainer. You know, you know how to work the audience and make everyone feel you do something magical that great performers do. Tony does it. So do great musicians. They look at the audience just like 1.2 times longer than you're supposed to. So it feels like you have a personal connection and you have a way of creating that connection during our meetings, for example, and asking people's opinions, making them feel important and valued. And that is an authentic thing. It is both a presentation performance, in my opinion, mm-hmm. as well as it is completely real. Yeah. And Tony has that ability. So that's one core distinction here. Yeah. And when you talked about the concentration of energy, absolutely positively agree. Something else happened years ago. I met Richard Dreyfus on a flight and I ended up spending a good chunk of time with him. And the short version was I saw him up ahead seated in a seat ahead of me. And on the way off the plane, I was thinking, how do I meet Richard Dreyfus? I want to connect with him and learn more and have a relationship with him. And I came up with a way, I handed him a book and I said, hi, Mr. Dreyfus, I have an idea to help you raise money for your foundation. And he turned to me and said, walk with me, let's start talking. And mm-hmm. you know, a week later, he was in my studio. I was helping him out. I helped him on some consulting and did an interview. And, and you know, he was, had a lovely time, but he said something. And this is the big lesson. We we're talking about money. And he said, Mike, let me tell you something. I'm an actor, not a movie star. And the way you can tell is by what's in my bank account. <laughs> and look, he's damn near 80 and he's still a working actor mm-hmm. and he's been in incredible movies, but he's never had the big payday. And if you look at someone like Madonna, Lady Gaga, they're stars, yeah. right? That's that distinction. And it's not just looks, you know, when you meet a star mm-hmm. and you know, when you meet a worker. And there's a big, big difference between that. And the last, there's a great star story. It was B.B. King. He's about to go out on stage. And at the last minute, the bass player says, I'm not going on stage unless you double my salary. And B.B. opens up the curtain. He says, see that whole audience out there? The bass player says, yeah. And he goes, do you know who they're here to see and listen to tonight? He goes, so. You take your seat, you walk up on that stage and you play or you'll never work in this business ever again. (laughs) And that was the end of the story, right? And I don't know if that's true or not. I heard the story. I'm just repeating it. But I think the important lesson is always remember whose platform. If it wasn't true, it should be true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) Don't be blackmailing me. That story deserves to be true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. It's funny you brought up Dreyfus, Mike. I watched Jaws last night. Oh, I literally watched the movie Jaws last night with Dreyfus and one of his, you know. Yeah, this is highly individual, you know, which path you take. You know, there's a lot of circumstances that decide a lot of things, who you are, what time it is, 
you know, what's the period, you know, what's available to you. There's all these things. But one thing I want to add, you were talking about the entertainment and the content, but what I've really focused on is actually context, okay? Oh, yeah. We actually talked about this, Mike, about a month ago on our podcast, and that is that all the people who I consider my audience, they don't actually want to know what I know. They actually want to know why they should know me. We actually talked about this. And that is, I'm a great shortcutter. I create enormous thinking shortcuts, communication shortcuts, action shortcuts. And all my audience are people who are looking for shortcuts, okay? They're all entrepreneurial. So I'm very, very niched, you know? People said, what do you think about the statement, the audience is always right? And I said, I think the audience is always right if it's the right audience. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. The whole thing is that you can be saying really great things, but it's just the wrong audience for you. And guess what? That audience is wrong. Okay. If they think what you're saying is bullshit, it's wrong, but it's not wrong because they're right. It's wrong because they're not the right audience for you to talk about. So I've really spent 30 years, 30, 40 years just saying, who is the person that what I have to offer is really right for them. In other words, this is what they're looking for. They want it. They don't want to go through five years of experience to get five lessons. They'd rather the person with five years of experience distill it down for them that they can learn the five things in a day or an hour. So my belief is that I'm very just specialized for a certain kind of person. And I think the audience building, look, you can't know from the start who your audience has got to be. There's got to be a lot of trial and error with us. I mean, you know, things you thought were right that weren't right, things that you didn't know were right and suddenly they become right. I just think there's a lot of trial and error to developing the right audience. So the X factor that we were talking about earlier, Mike, that, you know, moth to a light bulb, that person just walks into the room and the charisma and just the way they are. Are you born with that? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I think it comes back to that question of authenticity. I know people who have faked it until it appeared as though they had it. And deep inside, they always kind of gave me the creeps. And it's because they wanted it so desperately that there's that embedded neediness. So I think it's just about the foundation. And then there's that bright shining star. And I've seen kids who are like three years old who have the it. You can't take your eyes off them. And you're like, where did that burst of pure starlight come from? You know, it's as if you're seeing an alien wrapped in a human skin, you know? (laughs) So I'm going to just say, I think there are people who are born with it. I think there is a time And there is a phase, I can't remember what it's called, but some psychologists and some astrological people know what this is. And someone smarter than than me will probably recognize this. But there is a moment of truth. And anyone who's ever experienced this moment of mastery in their life, when something clicks and you find your it, to use Dan's language, your unique ability, and you're like, ah, you know, and that hopefully will happen where you have multiple inventions and reinventions throughout your life. But you've seen it before with like, you meet someone who's like a hack guitarist and you go away for a summer and you see them and they come back and you're like, holy crap, 
they just had this thing and they're playing the blues or they're playing some music and you're like, they've got that it. Like there are a few people like Freddie Mercury. That guy had more it. And if you just watch the Live Aid concert that they ended up using in the movie, there's a guy with it. And then another example, there's another musician that is a take your breath away moment. And I'm spacing at it right now, but I'll just leave it at that. Was Freddie Mercury born with it? I think he just knew so much of who he was. He was going to fight for it no matter what until it either killed him or made it. And I think there's that hunger that determines. So I think if you activate the hunger and then you have that moment Mm -hmm. of perfect clarity when you meet your tool and something comes out of you, but there's just as much magic as there is discipline behind it. Dan, same question. Are you born with it? I don't know whether you're born with it, but I know you die with it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. No, what I mean is you don't retire from it. That when you die, you're still developing it. Okay, so that's my biggest proof. The other thing is that other people see it as a fight, but you just see it as no alternative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember my second bankruptcy, I went to see a banker who was a nice guy. And he had probably taken somewhat of a professional risk. In other words, my failure actually you know, gave him a bad grade card in that world. And he said, I know your background. You've given me your background. You're a writer. You've made good money as a writer. You've made good money as an artist. When are you going to stop this thing? You know, and I was about 10 years into coaching and you can be ahead of the world with what you're doing. And the world kind of has to catch up with what it is you're doing. And I can think of lots of people that they were just ahead of the world and it looked like they were failures. They were just early, you know. The only question is, can you hold out long enough for the world to catch up with you? Yeah, that's right. Or where the world destroys you or they see it and feel it and you're such a threat. It's like the Nikola Tesla, you know. Yeah. He's an example of that. Yeah. Yeah. But. I said to him, look, there's no alternative. I'm just not smart enough yet to be good at this. I'm just not smart enough to be successful. But I said, there's no alternative except to keep going what I'm doing. And so I don't see it as like, gee, I'm a failure at this and I'm going to have to find something else. I think if it's it, you know, you just keep going. Now, the big question is, you can be a stupid it. (laughs) Yeah. It was so funny. I had, by courtesy of Joe Polish, I had a real treat of spending about two hours with Alice Cooper and his wife one night in Scottsdale. He was a session musician, just like a lot of people were in Hollywood. They all had, you know, kind of suites in a hotel in Los Angeles, and Janis Joplin was one of them, and Jimi Hendrix was one of them. He met Shep Gordon, who's his manager, his Shep Gordon was introduced to Alice Cooper by Jimi Hendrix. He said, this this young guy, he says, you know, you're going to need somebody like this. He said, I don't know if I'm going to last long enough to need somebody like Shep, but he says, you will. This year, Alice Cooper just came off a 70 concert world tour. He's 74 years old. Okay. And he's really smart. And he was really smart in his marriage. He's got a great marriage and she gave him the... You know, you either stop doing certain things or I'm gone and I've got the papers all written up and the lawyer is expecting me. So you you got to make your choice. And I think he was smart enough to know that he needed this. I feel smart in terms of teaming up with Babs. 
And I feel very smart in teaming up with all my collaborations. Mike is one of them. Joe Polish is one of them. Tucker Max is one of them. Ben Hardy is one of them. I've got all these really smart collaborations. So my sense is that I've seen people who are supremely talented, but really stupid. And I've seen people who are supremely talented over time it develops, but they team up with the right people along the way. So that's my thought about that. It's a hard thing to know, you know, it's a hard thing to know, but I do know that nobody retires from it. And as you've said in the past, Dan, there's no incentive, like no alternative. And for those with the it, there is no alternative. That's the incentive. Yeah, and you're not seeing it like, I just don't think you're tortured by the way that other people, well, did I choose the right thing? Is this the right path? You know, is this where the money's going to be made? Is this going to make you popular? I don't think people who have it go through any of that thinking. They just want to know, can I be freed up enough to do this all the time? That is absolutely true. And can I get someone that I trust to manage all the noise so I can be in that zone all the time? Yeah. That is the ruin of so many great creatives. You know, it's like the story of Prince, for example, who, by the way, was another one of those people with an it that I think was, he was so hungry to have Much more than Michael Jackson, by the way. I mean, just totally not a particular fan of both of them, but I see the one and the other. And you could just tell that he just dialed it in. You know, there wasn't any contrivance about it at all and everything like that. You know, it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, my all-time favorite pop entertainer is Roy Orbison, okay? Yep. And Roy Orbison, you know, I have to tell you, he was into what he was doing when he was about five years old. But I have to tell you, it was a long haul. It was 25 or 30 years. And then he kind of hit a groove, and all of a sudden, these it was number one after number one just started popping out. But it's kind of like he was... I mean, Elvis Presley was interviewed and he said, you know, you have one of the greatest pop voices. And he says, no, no, no. He says, I'll tell you who's got the greatest voice of any pop singer in the world. And that's Roy Orbison. He says, yeah, we're all in agreement with that. There's not a pop singer that I know. If you get him in private and you ask him who's got the greatest singing voice of a pop entertainer of all time, it's Roy Orbison. You know, I mean, Katie Lane, who was a terrific singer, And she said, I was scared to death when I worked with him. He could start an octave lower and he could finish an octave higher. He just went up there and he never moved. If you watch him, he never moves. It's just, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. No, he had a voice of an angel. Yeah. And a thoroughly nice human being. I mean, everybody really, really liked him, you know, but it was long. You know, he died 52. You know, I mean, his, you know, if he hadn't died, he would be singing in the 70s or 80s, you know, but he didn't take care of himself. Yeah. Yeah. I thought of one more who's worth looking at if you haven't reviewed him in a long time. Stephen Perry from Journey. They were another crazy journey. And he went back. He was working on his uncle's turkey farm. He had given up on music. And one of the guys from Journey found him because they discovered an old demo tape and said, give it a shot. And it was his mother who said, you know, go for it because he had bills to pay. Yeah. So he could have just disappeared. And that would have been that. And he wound up being one of the greatest rock and roll performers of all time with an absolutely angelic voice. Yeah. 
and yeah. went through the grinder as well. You know, the BGs are another one of those. And all of them have the same stories. Yeah. They would have died getting there yeah. or it ended up killing them. So, you yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when it showed up early, you don't know because you don't necessarily know the story, but most of how they end up and when they end up is pretty well public record. And, you know, you don't retire to the golf club when you've got it. End on a high. If you don't know if you have it, if the thought of retiring to the golf club makes you want to, you don't you have don't it. have it. Mike Hannings, where can people learn a little bit more about you and get to know a little bit more about the work that you do? Obviously, the show you do with Dan, Capability Amplifier, you can find that on our network page, Strategic Podcasts, with an S, strategicpodcasts.com. Click that and you can find Capability Amplifier. But the work that you do, where can people learn a little bit more? First of all, I'll just repeat that, which is capability amplifier is one of my favorite things on the planet to do. Magic happens every time we have a chance to chat, but it's just my personal website. And I'll give you somewhere to go to because I'm a huge fan of storytelling first and foremost, and finding the fastest way to have someone experience a transformational journey and raise their hand and say yes. And so if you go to mikekanigs.com slash funnel, you'll see a video that I produced not that long ago. It's all about capturing transformations. And I think that's really the secret, you know, tying all this together. If you're going to be a charismatic or you're going to be a star, you're going to be anything, you've always got to be looking for how do I create a transformation all the time? And I think that's where you create momentum. So that would be my answer. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. On to the next. Let's do it. Thank you. Okay.